Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 34. Let's just pray and seek the Lord that he would speak to us even as we begin reading through this, that we would begin to hear from him, that his spirit would just begin to work in our hearts and do what he would have in us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting with the first one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. For then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when God says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, 
that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Morning. It's good to be here with you. A couple things before we jump into uh, a lengthy text this morning. Uh, The first is this. We have including today four sermons left in this series over the book of first Corinthians. Uh, Then we'll do a shortened two-week Advent that leaves one week left for a filler message, and we will start a brand new series at the beginning of 2020. So that's kind of what our preaching outlook looks like for the next little bit. Uh, The the second thing that I want to tell you uh, is um, Dennis did a great job with a hard text last week. Uh, I hope that you appreciate that and understand that you are cared for uh, well. Uh, And lastly, this our time of prayer um, and worship last week was awesome. Um, I believe that God is doing something new and fresh in us right now, something that, uh, as I've just sat back and thought, it's something that I prayed for all the way back in March when we preached through Recalibrate and Renew, that series. If you weren't here for that, we still have the podcast available to that. But now at the end of 2019, what we were praying for months and months and months earlier, we're beginning to see fruit and effects from that, and that's really good news. Uh, I said it last week when I came up uh, after service, uh, hopefully you heard it through uh, tears and jumbled speech that uh, God is doing something very specific in us. Uh, in accordance with our faith, with our, our soul, God is replacing sadness, frustration, apathy, and bitterness with a fresh helping of his love and grace and mercy. He is at work doing that. And there are many that right now that God is patching up and he's healing up. Uh, and I believe that he is kind of setting us up for a brand new season as Redemption's Hill Church. And if you're one of those people that God is beginning to work in and you have sensed that he is kind of doing some great stuff in you, I just want to implore you to share your story. Uh, revival and change and awakening happens when those who God is changing, they begin to tell other people and, and, and ask them and pull them with them and pray that God would continue it on. So your story isn't yours alone. Would you share it with the other people around you? Uh, for those of you who know me and have been around, uh, I'm not a rah-rah, fake enthusiasm, cheerleader type of pastor. Like that's just not really in me. Uh, But I do believe it so strongly that I can almost taste it that great days are ahead of us. God is near, not in an ethereal, unquantifiable way, like he's actually near, and God wants to do more in our hearts. He has not finished working. Uh, I think many of you sensed that last week. You may have not known what it was, but felt this thing kind of stirring and moving that is the presence of God, and that reaffirms something, that all the great preaching that we try and do, our plans, our our worship, our systems, they're pretty much worthless if God doesn't draw near. Uh, And the good news is he is, though. So we will be praying that the Lord will continue to, to draw near to us, that he won't stop working, that he will maneuver the kind of furniture in our hearts to do his work. For some of you, I know that you're hungry for a change, for God to work in you, but you're scared of what that looks like. Can I 
kind of just say over you, don't let your fear rob you from God working in you. Um, lastly, before we jump in the text, this is a awesome text. Uh, so some of you may want to practice using an amen in a couple places here. Uh, it gets lonely up here, so uh, it, it is okay. Uh, it's okay to do that, right? Okay, there we go. Now we can jump into the text. Uh, in this book, so much has happened, right? We only have four messages left. One of the key things that I hope that you are picking up on, it'll be an absolute fail if we don't get this through all the time we've spent in this text, is the gospel applies to everything, all of life. We've heard about a ton of really big and weighty problems in the book of 1 Corinthians so far, divisions, popularity contests, fights, sex and sexual misconduct issues, uh, people not wanting to honor their marriage covenants, how to express rights in the public square, in church, how do rights affect mission, how do we view food, how do we gather, how do we view the Holy Spirit, all of those things Paul has strained to say the gospel informs each and every one of those things, and only through the gospel will we have a healthy view of any of those things. Through this 15th chapter, what we'll cover today and what we'll cover next week, there will be a new issue that is brought up before us. The issue is death, specifically what happens to a person after they die. Not when we begin to think of that, does nothing happen? Does something happen? Do our dead relatives float around? And watch over us like some people proclaim when they lose someone, which is creepy when you think about it? Do you get stuck in purgatory and need a family member to pay and pray you out? What happens? What happens after you die? This one question um, blew into a huge ordeal in Corinth, something so big that Paul wrote what is now 58 verses. We covered the first 34 uh, earlier to address head on the question, what happens after you die? Think about this. He writes more about this question of what happens after death than he did about prophecy, speaking in tongues, and love put together. More time there than all of those, in this than all of those things. He spent more time on the question of what happens after you die than he did explaining the Lord's Supper and what that means. Now, I point that nugget of truth out not to try and impress you with like keen observation skills, but I point it out to say that Paul is going to be asserting if we do not get this one concept right, that what we believe or what we do after is really not going to matter. This one question is paramount. He'll say, if you don't get this answer right and hold to it, then your faith is in vain, meaning it's worthless. You, you might as well just go do something else. It's a massively important thing. So let's do something because we, try, we tend to try and uh, maybe dehumanize people when we read things in the Bible. Like, how did they get here? How is there a fight over death? But uh, to, to try and understand how they got to this crossroads, I'll just kind of ask us this. Have you ever lost someone and begin to wonder about that person. Maybe it's a funeral. Maybe your parents took you to a grave. Um, maybe you just had a moment alone and you begin to think about what happens when I die. But have you ever had something happen where it kind of shakes you around and you begin to wonder what happens to a person after they die? Maybe you've gazed at a casket or grave and your imagination just began to go down that trail of existential questions that we try not to ask, right? Where are they? I wonder if they knew Jesus. I see them one day again physically. 
Will I see them one day again spiritually? And then maybe you begin to think, well, I wonder if we just lie to ourselves. Like maybe they're just dead and it means they don't exist at all and it means nothing. Maybe I won't see them physically and I won't see them spiritually and they're just completely gone. Maybe we invented the idea of resurrection and heaven to make us not feel so crappy when people die. Maybe religion is just the opiate of the masses and they're just gone. Uplifting, right? Death is a time where our hearts and minds ask really big weighty questions, where you can't escape the fragility of life and the shortness of our earthly existence. We are but a breath. I lost my grandfather a couple years ago, and my oldest son Judah still remembers him pretty well. Uh, Actually, it's fascinating how well he remembers him. But Judah asks really specific questions about my grandpa Joe. Specifically, he asks him quite often when me and him are laying in bed and I'm tucking him in or talking, he'll look at me and he'll just go like, hey, can Grandpa Joe see us right now? Will we see him again? Does he still look old? Is he still sick? How will we see him again? When will we see him again? Over and over and over, he asks these questions, which just kind of show us that we have these longings inside of us, and they're put there at a very, very young age. Even if, uh, as adults, we kind of try and mute and push away and ignore these types of questions, they're there. In Corinth, the church members had those questions, and this is what was happening. They're looking at friends' graves, ones like people that they grew up with, people that lived next door, people that they'd known for a long time and who had died. And as they started staring at their graves or at their tombs, they began to believe and say out loud, they're never coming out. They're gone. It's all over. There's no resurrection of the dead. They just simply couldn't believe that there's any way that dead people could be raised up and live again. They thought about it and decided rationally, it makes no sense, which is correct. It makes no sense. So many of them begin to reject the idea of a bodily resurrection and just tell other people to as well. They're just dead. Stop wasting your time. It's over with. Move on. They began to change part of the narrative, and that one change, this one detail, was the one that Paul says, if you let that stand, it'll destroy all of Christianity and your faith. This detail becomes Paul's mountain to die upon, his, his, uh, his fight that he will dig his heels in and he will not let it go. But Paul fighting and contending over this, what happens after you die, it's not about pride. It's not about him winning personally. Paul is fighting to change their minds so they don't lose everything because if you don't get this right, as Paul says, everything you will get wrong. The rest of the text and the time today will be used to kind of see how he argues this. I'll give you a couple questions before we begin looking at his writing and what happens. Hopefully you'll see why these questions matter by the time we try and end the plane or finish today. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will have time to kind of uh, prod you a little bit about these questions though. First, what do I believe about eternity? What do I believe? Do I believe there is one? There isn't one? All good people go there. How do you get there? What do I believe about eternity? And then here's the the connector. Do I live in line with what I believe about eternity? Is my life congruent 
with my view on an eternal plane? Or does what I believe and how I live, do, do, do they not match up very well? What do I believe about eternity and do I live in line with what I believe? Verse 12 shows us what I asserted uh, a minute ago, that these verses are all about what happened after, uh, after death. At the end of verse 12, Paul says this, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? How can you say that? How can you believe that there's nothing more? How can you believe that death is final? Paul begins to address this issue, though, by not actually addressing it, meaning he begins to address the issue of what happens after you die by bringing up the thing that applies to all things, the gospel. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of, and if you can see this, all bold, all caps, the gospel, not a gospel, not I want to remind you of gospel-ish. I want to remind you of the gospel, the gospel that I preached to you. And if you remember, it's the gospel that you received and you received it and accepted it as true over you. This gospel, which is the gospel, is what you stand on in your faith. It is what saved you and it's what you hold to. And if you don't hold to it, you will fall. The gospel. Hear the weight of what Paul says. If you don't firmly hold to the gospel, the one I brought you, if you shift away from it, if you alter it, if you mold it, if you mute parts of it, you have believed in vain. Your faith will be false, useless, empty. It'd be better off that you just go do something else. His point is to throw yourself into believing anything other than, again, the gospel is to throw yourself onto something that cannot hold you, help you, or save you. I think it's safe to say that Paul isn't playing around. So he starts with this. Look, at this is actually like a masterful case he brings. He starts with the centrality of the gospel. Then he's going to bring the history of the gospel and add the content centrality, history, content. It's very precise, intentional work that he's doing. So Paul says, what I received, the gospel, is what I passed along to you. I received it, and I gave that to you. I didn't pass my version of the gospel to you. I didn't take Peter's version. I didn't take a a Roman-filtered version of the gospel. I didn't take a more socially acceptable or palatable version of the gospel. I gave you the gospel. I passed down the same thing to you that was given to me, and then I handed it over to you. The gospel is transcultural. It's ageless. It's perfect in its pure state as long as we don't mess with it. Then he begins throwing out what we'll call the mountain to die upon the closed-fisted, non-negotiable, non-moldable parts of Christianity. There are things that we can agree to disagree on with other people. Organizational structures, Holy Spirit, women, eldership, voting, not. We can be brothers. What he says here is if you disagree on that, you cannot. If you take these away, he says you don't have Christianity anymore. Right? History, I gave you what I got and I didn't mess with it. First, he says, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. Important distinction. He didn't just get murdered. Christ died for our sins 
Like the Bible had said over and over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of years prior. He died for a reason. The reason is our sin. Then he was buried. There are people with just some ridiculous beliefs right now. He didn't hide off or hide out or sleep off a crucifixion. He died for our sins and then he was buried. Third, he was raised from the dead on the third day. Death for sin, buried, not dead anymore, resurrected. And Paul says this. He's building a case. He appeared to Cephas, this is Peter, and the 12 disciples after that. He also appeared to more than 500 people at the same time, of which some of those people were still alive when Paul wrote this letter to Corinth. He appeared to James and the other apostles, and then Paul says, and he also appeared to me. It's the foundation of why he's an apostle, and you should listen to him. Christ appeared also and gave that same gospel to me. So Paul gives here the need for a pure gospel, the gospel. He gives the history or the the chain of events of how the gospel was passed down to make sure that nobody monkeyed with it or changed it. And then Paul restates the content of the gospel to make sure we get it. Paul does all of that to lay out one important question. This is the entirety of verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Can can you see what he did there? He's pointing out a contradiction. What he's asking is how can you accept and hold to and live through the gospel, the same gospel that, that he just showed us is pure and untainted, which at its very center has a hinge pin that you cannot pull out, which is that Christ was resurrected from the dead on the third day. How can you stake your life on a truth involving resurrection and simultaneously believe that any resurrection from the dead is impossible? His line of reasoning is that if the resurrection or if resurrection is impossible, if you declare that as fact, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ is not raised, then my preaching is useless. And for that matter, so is your faith, he says. Worse than that, we're all liars. On top of that, our faith is futile. It's fruitless, worthless, empty, fake, an illusion. We're all dopes. And the worst of all, we're still stuck stuck in our sin. We, we have no way out. He pushes further and says, if there is no resurrection, if it's all just made up, then yeah, look at the graves of your friends and realize they're it's just over, gone forever. And also, if there is no resurrection and all we get to do is throw our hope into 33 years of teaching from Jesus, if all we get to do is, is believe in the morality and the kindness and the words of Jesus, but he didn't actually defeat death in the grave and he's still dead, then we are utterly hosed and should be pitied, he says. He didn't say hosed, I did. Why? This is the uncomfortable part, but we have to wrestle with it. Why are we in such a bad spot? Because the wrath of God is still upon you and you have no way out. You'll never get out. 
here clearly. The implications of not believing in the resurrection are severe. Paul says if resurrection is, is untrue, then so is the reality of a Savior. If Jesus is still dead, we have no Redeemer. If we have no Savior and Redeemer, then life is meaningless and really, really sad. Why? Because all of our pain gets met with silence, has no resolve and no end date. All our struggle to believe is for naught because you get nothing from it. You suffer and then you die and then you meet the wrath of God. That is the reality if Jesus is still dead. That's why he says if he's still dead, we should be pitied because we're all fools with no hope and a whole lot of problems. Then you get to a more uplifting part. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, he says. That's the place for the amen. The Bible says that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's a first fruit? Not that complicated. We go into the field and something's ripe. You take the first one off. You say it's about ready to get the rest. It's the first of many more to follow. What is it saying? That Jesus is the first resurrection of many others to follow after it. Paul is connecting here. Jesus being resurrected is more than one person's triumph. It's a sign of triumph for every person who is saved and believes in him. Christ's victory over death is our victory. It is our win. It is our hope of the things to come. Paul lays down some biblical theology here saying, in the same way that we are all infected and affected by Adam's sin, meaning the sin that he did brought sin on the trajectory of all of our lives, the resurrection of Christ also brings his resurrection on the trajectory of our lives if we believe in him. It's called imputation. He says, this is the way it's going to go. First, Christ defeats death through his resurrection. He's the first fruit. And then those who have fallen asleep, this is biblical words for saying people who died, then those who believe and have fallen asleep will be resurrected. When the Jesus that we see in Revelation bursts onto the scene like a lion. When Jesus returns like a warrior, giving life to those who believe in him. And here's the part that we downplay because it makes us really uncomfortable. When Jesus comes back to give life to his people, he will also start waging war on all of his enemies. Life to some and destruction to others. Verse 24, it said it. Then the end will come and he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power for he must reign until he puts all his enemies, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's another good news thing. I want to make a little observation for those of you who grew up with left behind. You, along with me, were given a fictional storyline and told it was biblical. As Paul lays out the triumph of the return of the King of Kings, Jesus, there are no words about rapture in there. Meaning there are no words of Jesus vanishing all of us away. The, the message is, absolute, is, is actually the opposite. Christ doesn't pull us all out and take us somewhere else. He returns on a war mission to fix all things in the here and the now. 
He comes to destroy his enemies and everything that stands in opposition to the Father. Every territory, every authority, every power, every person who stands against God will be the enemy of the warrior Jesus who returns like the Lion of Judah. We have to understand Jesus doesn't return as a pacifist. He's coming to crush his enemies. Man, I don't say that out of delight. It's terrifying. See, we so often forget that the wrath of God wasn't erased altogether through Jesus. Jesus paid for the wrath of all those who believe in him, but the wrath of God is still there like a tidal wave being held back by grace. One day it's going to be let go, and Jesus will be the expression of the wrath of God destroying all things that are not in line with him. It's not gone. The whole like, Jesus is my homeboy, God forgot all things. It's not in the Bible. What does it say about the revelation Jesus who comes back? Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head uh, and on his head are many diadems, if that's how you say it. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. We don't get delight out of these other words, but hear this, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may hear this and think, that makes me so uncomfortable. I don't like that Jesus. Man, straight up, we all have to wrestle with that. But we have to know that this isn't some new doctrine or some side project. This trajectory... It's the narrative and the destination and the content of the entire Bible. We see it back in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, verse 15. It is where God says this, one day one will come and he will crush the head of his enemies. That wasn't metaphorical. We find it again in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, And then we actually find it everywhere in between as well. A warrior will return. See, we may have struggled because we assumed that Satan was the only enemy of God. But Paul says here that Jesus will return and put all enemies, that's multiple, under his feet. This means all who don't trust and submit to God through the person of Jesus will be the enemy of Jesus. I want to be careful to not like rah-rah too much in this. We don't get joy out of pressing on this, but we have to understand we have so cautiously stepped around the idea of a warrior Jesus that we forget that we desperately need him. 
I don't, I don't know about your view of eternity in heaven, but just ask yourself this. Who will end sin and its power if not a warrior? Who will end the cycle of brokenness that we see every year, or if not the warrior, Jesus? Who will crush the violent, the proud, and the carnage that we see that is overwhelming around us? Basically, what we have to ask is how can God end pain and suffering? How can sin and shame and death be removed from our lives? How can God's order be restored to the earth like it first was if he lets things uh, continue to roam that oppose it? Are you following me? The only way to end the fall and restore God's rule and blessing over all of creation is to wage war against all things that stand against God's rule. Again, if you say, well, that just doesn't sound like a loving God. God is love. Can I, uh, can I not snarky-like, but lovingly say that's r- truly a matter of perspective? There are only two options. Let evil go on forever or end it. That, that's all there is. The Bible states one day it will be ended so God can be with his people again and he can wipe away our tears and reign and rule again. See, we so often get enamored by the illusion of love saying, well, if God really is love, if he really is good, if he really is kind, he'd just accept us and not judge us. Process that further though, because what that is is our temper tantrum that says, let me do whatever I want and not get in trouble. When we get sucked into this view of God, we have to understand if that God really exists, he's not holy, he's not loving, and he's not kind. Why? Because the cycle of pain and destruction has no end date. This is all you get. Get this. The enlightenment has failed over and over and over and over again. The belief that through technology, through wisdom, through, through rights, through uh, options, through all of this stuff, that if we just get these pieces in line, that the world will be fixed. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, we've tried that, and we are O for a million on that. Our resumes have proved generation after generation that we cannot fix what we are in. Only the warrior Jesus can. Can I tell you, this is the impetus for mission. Why be missional? Because there's a warrior coming back and there's people that we love. Oh man, maybe we erase the warrior Jesus because we don't want to be kind and missional. What you might find is if the idea of a warrior Jesus bothers you, it's possible that you've been sold what, what we'll call moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism is massively popular in the West. And it believes functionally pretty much this. God exists to come alongside our lives and enhance them for our liking and joy. That we follow God and we reap benefits of feeling better about ourselves. Some moral pragmatism gives us a little bit better lives. And then we get some enhanced version of our life given to us through faith. Right? Therapy, it makes you better. But this is not biblical Christianity. 
God hasn't come to supercharge your life. God sent Jesus to die for our sins and then raise again in order that we may follow suit. What does that mean? It means he sent Jesus in order that we may die as well. That we may die to our old self, to our body of sin, to our sin nature, and be brought back to life as new redeemed people living in the kingdom of God. Christianity doesn't say, God, help me live my best life now. It screams, put to death the old sinner because I can't fix them. Resurrect me to new life in you. Make me new. War against my body of sin. Strong warrior Jesus because I can't, I can't fix it. From the ashes of my old body, bring me up to follow you. This is Christianity. I get it. This is uncomfortable. This is the message that we have to recapture, and this is also the message that Paul was dropping on Corinth back then. Jesus is not an elective and a side addition when it's convenient to you. It's only through forgetting that he's also a warrior that we would believe that we can still do whatever we want. Can I ask you a pointed but necessary question? Do you now or have you ever seen that Jesus needed to change you? Like, have you you ever made that connection? I needed the warrior. I needed the blood of Jesus to change me. I needed to put something else to death because I tried and tried and tried and tried and couldn't fix it. Have you now or have you ever seen that? If no, I strongly wonder, why do you think you need Jesus then? He has not and never will be your life coach. He hasn't come to give you advice. He's come to kill the old you and make all things new by raising you up back to new life in him. If you never submitted to that Jesus, I would just implore you today, would you? I promise that you'll find new depth that you're going to stop trying to barter with him to like you and you're going to find new life in the one that has done much to love you. Paul towards the end, then he circles all the way back for us saying, if there is no resurrection, then none of, uh, none of that would be true or possible. We would have no future hope, no future promise, no end date to our suffering, no wiping away your tears. If all of that is true, he then declares the exact motto of the world around us. If none of it's true, then this should be how you live, and this is actually the motto of our world. If the dead are not raised, if the resurrection is not true, then Jesus isn't alive, and we should all eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die, and it's over. Get yours. If Jesus is dead, YOLO, get yours, get hammered, live life, do all that you can. It's only you. Forget everybody else. Live for excess, live for the moment because your life will pass you by. This is called hedonism. If you die, there is no hope for you. So squeeze every last drop out of the here and now because you're going to get buried and it's over. You got one run, so make it count. Forget responsibility, forget commitment, forget compassion, forget humility, forget meekness, race to get all you can. All that matters is you squeeze everything you can out of this thing. Maybe we would say, well, I don't view things like that. But it teaches us run towards what is fun. 
Strive for what you want. And respectfully say no to everything else. That might sound a lot more like us. Paul speaking so clearly to our context that it's scary. Our Western world now believes that if religion and rules and paradigms are gone, we'll be happy. Just remove any confinement, any barrier, any tension around us. Just remove it, and when you do, we'll be happy. Just replace all of that with absolute freedom of choice, and then all will be well. Freedom to choose anything and everything we want personally and have it immediately is the key to life. You follow me? This is the message of our world. Get whatever you want and get it now. Think about the way our world is put together. We have done all that we can to harness technology and public opinion in such a way that lets us literally have whatever we want right now. You you get it, right? You don't go rent movies anymore, right? When I was a kid, you had to call, you had to reserve that thing, then they called you in a week, right? Technology and public opinion is harnessed where you don't have to wait on anything. You get it right now. We can get pretty much anything given to us in 24 hours. And if you live in a bigger city than ours, you can get pretty much whatever you want in like an hour. You can have whatever you want right now. Further, you can get whatever you want without having the money to pay for it credit cards. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do your budget for it. You can have whatever you want in one hour to gratify yourself and you can have it without the money to pay for it. And then also culture has put a hit out on truth. So nobody will tell you you're an idiot. You're too afraid of the social mob and the implications. We have crafted the perfect world to eat and drink for tomorrow you'll die. Are you following me? Whatever you want, as fast as you want, you don't have the money for it, and no one will check you because they're terrified. We have created and crafted the world that is not in the biblical storyline. A world that lives by the paradigm of get all you can as fast as you can. But friends, that's a story. If we get sucked into it and live by it, able to yield a life that doesn't see, remember, or live for eternity. If Christians begin to play by those rules, living for the race to do more, get more, and be more, living in the obsession for more choices and more opportunities and FOMO and experiences, how will we be the light of the world that Jesus called us to be? If you want to... Just common sense. If you want to maximize your choices, then you can't commit to anything. How will you be the light of the world if you live inside of that? How will you shine the message of Jesus into the darkness if you're so worried about not losing another opportunity? How will you be the salt of the earth, the preservative that the world needs if you are busy running the same race and the same path as everyone else? How can you show them something better? Rhetorical, the answer is you can't. I can't, we can't. You cannot show the world a better life 
if we're still living in the life that we were called out of through the resurrection. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You understand what that's saying? If you fight to keep this old life that you're pulled out of through the resurrection because you're like, well, I don't want to miss anything and I just want to have the most fun, that's fighting to save your life. You're going to struggle and you're going to lose your life in anxiety and terror because of it. You get we have more options than we've ever had and we are more anxious and depressed than we have ever been. It is a lie that more will make you happier. This is why Paul says, do not be misled. The words here in the last part, in the original language, I think they probably might be a little difficult, but bad company corrupts good character. He's not saying cut yourself off from anyone who's not like you. He's saying bad company is literally to align your life with those who declare in word and deed that the resurrection isn't true to live in line with, follow with, walk with closely, to set your life up, to live next to and follow uh, things when people do not admit the resurrection is true or live like it. That's what he's saying. Don't be misled. This is going to hurt you. He's saying if you're believing that the resurrection isn't true or if you're living like the resurrection isn't true right now, then wake up and walk away from your sin, which means repent. Again, repent unto life. Because you're living a life that's oblivious to what God has done for you and oblivious that you have an inheritance and a bright, bright, bright future. What do we do with this text? How do we process it? How do we wrestle with it? Not just trying to scare you with a warring Jesus, but we, we got to track back to the questions. I seriously hope that in this moment, in worship and later this week, you will think about these. What do I believe about eternity? More importantly, do I live right now in line with what I believe? This is not a message to make you have another thing to get better at. Understand he's saying if you live out of line with your eternity, you're going to be frustrated and hurt here. Are you possibly living like the resurrection never happened right now? Are you living like everyone around us basically for what you want? Maybe not through some crazy overt sin, but just living the path of least resistance, self-gratification, get what you want, make yourself happy. some good flags to help us understand if we're there. Maybe you're seeing right now that I am just super impatient. That delayed gratification seems to be lost right now. I just got to have these things and I got to accomplish. I got to have fast. Can Can we see that's a sign? Maybe you see an I'll be honest. I've felt this way about myself before. Maybe you come to a crossroads where you realize I don't even know how, but I've gotten so selfish with my time, with my efforts, with my intentionality, with my openness with people around me. I've just got selfish where I'm not willing to do much that inconvenience me or seems not awesome. These are clear signs that we're walking in and living the eat and drink for tomorrow you will die mindset. 
that we're living without remembering there's a resurrection and that we need God to show us again how to step off that treadmill. Here's the deal. All of us get sucked into the flow of the world at times. It's not the ignorant or the misinformed. We all get it at times. We get pulled in without even noticing at times and we'll get lost. And I think today serves as a moment for, for some of us to hit reset and begin walking in light with the eternity that has been given to us. Thank God for off-ramps and times to repent. You might be surprised how quickly the joy of your salvation is restored when you actually live in light with the eternity that Christ has given you. Go back and read the Gospels and hear it. Just straight up, it's hard. When you fight to keep your life for just the way you want, you will lose it all. That's the message over and over in the gospel. Trust me, follow me. But that has to walk away from the YOLO, eat and drink type of life. The gospel is exactly what Paul said. Jesus came and died for our sins. Ours. For the sin that each of us have fallen into and none of us can escape from. But though he died on the third day, he rose again and he defeated death and the grave. Now the door is open to us to believe in Christ ourselves. To accept the gospel ourselves and to follow him, to turn from the way of life that rejects the reality of what he has done. And find new life in King Jesus. See, following Jesus gives us a beautiful hope for today and in the future. Today we get to stand fully accepted and redeemed because of Jesus' death. There is no penalty left for me. There's no shame left for me. My debt is is paid. I I am adopted. He's never going to let me go even when I fall on my face later. And in the future, I know that King Jesus will return someday and he will set all things right. All things that were broken because of my sin and everyone else's he'll fix. See, to follow Jesus is to live in light of that message. In church, there are moments where we'll get off that path and we have to repent and walk back towards him. In faith and in life, if we always take the road of least resistance, we'll never find life. My honest ask is that some of you would take the opportunity today to repent. Say, man, God, I... I forgot about eternity. I've been living just like everyone else around. You don't have to pray if you're in him, so please don't crush me. Just say, please help me understand what you've given me and live in light of it. Restore the joy of my salvation, the beauty of what you've done. Let me feel that. Let me me live in that. Let me be excited about what I have, not upset about it. And Jesus is alive, and because of that, our future is extremely bright. And Jesus will someday come and set all things right. Friends, I pray that some of us will repent. For the others of you, maybe you've fallen in line with moral therapeutic deism and maybe you'd realize that you've just never actually followed Jesus. My hope is that you would today. It's not a complicated process that you would ask, Father, I need you and your son. I can't fix my sin. Would you be my redeemer? I'd love to pray with you after about that. But this is the beauty. There is a resurrection, which means we have a hope and we get to live in line with that. 
We'll take communion today. You can come back up here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 for, 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, at any time in worship, you can come up and take the bread and dip it into the cup. And remember, there's a real sacrifice that has been given for you because of Jesus. And the reality is he's alive. So when we're partaking that, we're reminding ourselves, my king is alive. I have an eternity. My sin has been paid for. It lets life be breathed into you. I pray that the table would be a place of restoration for you, a place of hope, a place of mercy where you see so much has been done for you. Any here are welcome to come and take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus if you do. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, I pray that you will help us. Holy Spirit, you're the one that speaks to our hearts and aligns the pieces. I pray that you would work this morning. It is so, so difficult not to get caught up in the rhythms of everything around us. I pray corporately that you would draw us all together towards you. That where we've gone far away, where we forgot about the beauty of what has been done, you would restore the picture that we have an eternal hope, that we are alive, that there was an old person that was there that you've taken care of and you've brought new life to us. Father, restore the joy of that to us. I pray that you would. Father, I pray also as we preach about the warrior Jesus that you give us a new picture of mission. There is wrath. There is judgment one day. I pray that we would love well the people around us. That we would show them the true light of the resurrection, the true message of the gospel. Instead of trying to be molded in and live just like them, that we would begin to love them well by calling them out. Father, would you help us with that? And I just boldly ask that you would give us fruit in that, that we would see some of the people around us come to know you. They would see their lives transformed, that they would see you are good. May that start even with us repenting around people who don't know you so they could see the hope of you. Father, come and work. I thank you for what you've been doing lately, and I ask, please don't stop. Restore the joy of our salvation to us. Whether there's been bitterness and tiredness, would you replace it with just love for you and the people around us, a new joy as grace and mercy overflow us, Father? Father, for those who are far off and you're calling them, I pray that they would submit and just repent to you. That some of us would find life through repenting and others would find life through accepting you for the first time. We want to know you. We want to be brought to life. Heal us. Heal our picture of who you are. Make us not lose sight of the beauty of what we have in you, God. We love you. Be glorified. Please do your work. Come, draw near. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.